Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying that he has done all things well, and he made the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Mark, says, This is what we need if we are to reach our pagan secular world for Christ. An upward look of, of prayer a heartfelt sigh of compassion, a loving touch upon the hurting, a bold pronouncement of the good news, then healing then will come to our homes, our neighborhoods, our churches, and our world. What's this? It's a tool, that's right. It's a a cordless drill, right. And, And what is it typically used for? Drilling holes, maybe driving screws. Sometimes you have the right attachment. You can even like you know drive bolts. Mix paint. That's right. Yeah. In fact, you can actually put a little brush on here and use it to to remove rust. So, but uh, you generally get the idea. There's a purpose for this. But how is this about driving nails? Probably not a good idea, right? What about making a, a phone call, right? So obviously, then there are things that it can do and things it can't do. It's designed for a purpose. It was created for a reason. It has a function. And if, and if used properly in the right context, it works really, really well. All right. So then how about this? We know what this is, right? It's a claw hammer. Now, it's a little, little less, it's a little more low tech, right? I mean, no moving parts to it, but it, it has a purpose, right? It, it has a use. I mean, you can't really drill holes with it, right? But, but you can certainly drive nails and Maybe do some light demolition. I mean, some people can really tear stuff up with one of these, right? Um, it's not really so much, it's got a waffle end, so it's not really, really good for finish work unless you're really, really, really good, right? So but it's good for framing, and it's really, really good for smashing fingers, but, you know, by accident. I don't know if you've ever done that before. I mean, it wasn't really designed for that, but it's really good for that, right? But it was designed like, like the drill for a purpose. It was created for a purpose. But what happens when you use this contrary to the purpose? You can't really use this to send text messages, right? Now, I do know some people who would like to take their phone and use a hammer on it from time to time, right? Especially after it's had like four or five updates and it's really, really slow and the battery dies after like half an hour. Yep, Jordan's got his hand raised, yeah. What about washing your car? This is not really going to be a good instrument for that, right? So obviously it needs to be used for its purpose. Okay, well, how about this question then? What if you own a drill like this and a hammer, and you have more than your share of opportunities in your life 
in the world around you to drive nails, right, and to drill holes and fix things around you, but you never take the tools out of their toolbox and just leave them in the closet, what good are they to you? Not good at all, right? Well, let me, in light of that little analogy, and I know that you're going, where's he going? Just bear with me. Let me, let me share a scripture with you. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this. And you were dead in the trespasses of, and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if there is a more clear indictment of our condition before God in, in the Bible I don't know where it would be found. I mean, the Bible speaks to this very issue over and over again, but Paul really boils it down and gets really clear, right? There's a problem. We have a problem. We're born sinners. It's our nature. It's who we are. We were dead. We weren't like wounded in our trespasses. We were dead in our trespasses. Disobedient to God and obedient to the the prince of the air, which we all know who who he is, right? But then... Two of the most important words in the entire Bible follow that. It says, but God. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that all that was followed by those two words. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's like he couldn't even wait to say that, right? I don't know if you realize it, but that's an interjection. He had a thought going, and he just had to just, just let it slip out. By, by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show with the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Perhaps one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, probably next to John 3.16. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the good news. This is, this is what we long to hear. Right? And then he follows it up. It is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. It's not anything you did. You didn't bring anything to the table. You, didn't, you, you weren't good. Right? You, you didn't have the right attitude. You didn't have the right tools. You had nothing. You contribute nothing to your salvation. It is all God, all the time, 100% of the time. And, and, and we, we stop there. We go, praise the Lord. But I want you to look at the next phrase. Verse 10, he says, for. That word for connects what's about to be said to what he just said. For, in light of that, we are his workmanship or is masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for something. I want you to notice that you were saved for something. We were created in Christ Jesus by God for a purpose. And that purpose is, look at that, good works which God has prepared before him that should we walk that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, praise the Lord that those of you who have repented and believed the gospel that God in Christ has saved you. And that he saved you by his grace through faith. Praise the Lord for that truth. But if there's something that we need to come to terms with, 
both individually and corporately as a church, is the fact that God did not save you for you. Just own that. See, he even agrees. Amen to that. God did not save you for you. He didn't save you so that you can spend the rest of your life sitting in a chair on Sunday morning, singing songs, and listening to sermons, though you should do that. He didn't save you so that you can simply identify as a Christian, though you should do that. He didn't save you so you can spend the rest of your life listening to Christian radio and posting Christian memes on social media. He didn't save you so you can be offended every time the government does something to limit your religious liberty. He saved you for a purpose. God created you, the the broken, sinful, wretched you, right? He created you into a masterpiece. But He didn't create you to be a masterpiece that you just hang on the wall and look at from time to time. He didn't create you into something you sit on the shelf and forget about or put in the closet and not think about anymore. He created you for a purpose. And that purpose, as Paul says, is to do the good works that God has already planned and prepared for you to do. You were saved not for you. You were saved for Him. So that he could accomplish through you the good works that he's already planned ahead of time for you to do. So what are those good works? The good works are to follow Christ. The good works aren't just simply just to believe. It's to follow him. To go where Christ goes. And to do what Christ says to do. And to obey his commands. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, there's the, last, the last command that he gave the church was what? What was the last command he issued to, to the church at large? He said... In Matthew 28, go, therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Christ commands that we make new believers, that we evangelize the lost, we help introduce people to Christ and bring them into right relationship with Christ. We make new believers and help them to get plugged into the local church, what baptism signifies. And then we teach them to do likewise and follow Christ because they themselves have also been saved and created into a masterpiece for good works. So hear me, church family. If you call yourself by the name of Christ, if the Holy Spirit has changed your heart and you have entered the kingdom of God through repentance and faith, you were saved by God to join the mission of Christ. You were not simply just saved to believe something about Christ. You were saved to follow Him. And that's exactly what this series has been about. It's about following Jesus. It's about growing more and more like Him through discipleship. That's why we're walking through the, the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is an action-packed, fast-moving narrative that focuses and highlights on what Christ did on the earth. It focuses on how Jesus ministered and shared the gospel and how he treated and how he interacted with other people. And Mark certainly has a lot to teach us theologically, but it has also a lot to teach us practically about how we walk it out in this life, which is what we're going to see in this text today. In today's text, we're going to see what Kent Hughes calls Jesus' model for ministry. Jesus is going to model for us a way to minister the world around us that we should mimic. In this interaction 
between Jesus and a man who is deaf and has a difficulty speaking, we're going to see Jesus model the ideal way to engage and to minister to the world around us, just like Christ himself has called us to do. Just as the way Jesus designed you to do. So again, turn with me back to Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. And it reads, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the region of Decapolis. And and this right here is what you'd have to understand is this in context is a continuation of the same journey that we talked about last week. If you remember, Jesus left the Jewish region of Capernaum to go into the region called Tyre and Sidon, which was predominantly non-Jewish, or in other words, a Gentile area. And if you remember, right, this set up an important contrast that really gets right to the heart of the gospel message. Just before Jesus leaves, he gets into a conflict with the Jewish religious leaders called the Pharisees, and this conflict is centered on what makes a person defiled or unclean, or what makes a person at odds with with God. And the Pharisees, they believe that the answer to the question is an external answer. What makes a person unclean is, is on the outside. It's their behavior. It's, it's their ethnic identity. right? It's, it's, the, it's the religious group that they belong to. It's the nation that they were born in. It's the fact that they don't wash their hands before they eat. It's the kind of food that they eat. It's external. They believe that being unclean was the result of not following the rules and not being religious enough or not being from the right family. But Jesus then, he challenges them. And he explains to them that what makes a person defiled is not something on the outside of them, but rather it's something internal. It's, it's in here. It's not about your behavior. It's about your heart. That's why we say over and over again, Jesus didn't come to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. What makes people unclean and at odds with God is the fact that they have a corrupt heart. They were born sinners, and that's why we do the things that we do. That's what makes a person defiled. And so it's not about you know, following more rules. It's not about being more religious. It's, it's not about trying harder. It's not about being more sincere like the Pharisees. These men, these religious men were extremely religious and they followed all the rules, but yet Christ called them hypocrites because they think that they are clean by their own actions but, it, but the truth is, they're still defiled in their own hearts. And so then Jesus leaves them from there and goes to a Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon, which is considered by the Jewish people an unclean area. And then he has contact with a Gentile woman who is considered to be an unclean person. And she happens to be descended from Israel's ancient enemies, the, the Canaanites, which makes her particularly and especially unclean. And then to make it worse, her daughter is possessed by a demon or an unclean spirit. And so Jesus leaves behind a group of men who were born in the right country from the right family that belonged to the right religious group who believe that they're right with God. And then he goes to a woman in an unclean country with an unclean heritage and a daughter that has an unclean spirit. And Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're the hypocrites and he tells this woman that she has great faith. It's a stunning contrast. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week if you missed the message. But what's important to understand for context is that Jesus has been tearing down the notion that being right with God is about external behavior or about ethnicity or following the rules. And it's actually about having a trusting, persistent, humble, and submitted relationship, uh, submitted faith in Christ. 
And that salvation is not limited simply to the Jewish people, right? But it's for those who are considered to be on the outside, the Gentiles, which means that all people, regardless of who they are, can come to Christ. And this story that we're looking at today is a continuation of this same journey. Jesus goes to unclean people in an unclean land and brings healing in the message of hope to all those who were thought to be unredeemable, which proves again that all are welcome to come to Christ. If there's a message that we should be walking out of here proclaiming to the world around us is that all are welcome to come to Christ. In fact, we should be reminding people, no matter who you are, and no matter where you've been, and no matter what you have done, and no matter what your background is, and no matter how much shame you might feel, and no matter how unclean you might think you are, all, all are welcome to come to Christ and be washed clean of their sins by the finished work of the cross. So Jesus continues his journey. And in fact, it's believed that this trip actually to the Gentile area lasted eight months and he travels, and he comes back to the region known as the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. And in verse 32 it says, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay hands on him. Now again, this region called the Decapolis, which literally means ten cities, if you remember, Jesus actually briefly visited to this place. He actually goes ashore and encounters a man who is demon-possessed. Not by one demon, but by ten demons. And he is like, like crazy, out of his mind, sleeping in tombs. They can't even chain him up. He's breaking chains. Um, he's got supernatural strength, and he is in a bad way. And Jesus casts out the demons, and the people in the area are so terrified, they ask Jesus to leave. He only stays but a, a, a few moments, and he's gone. Well, obviously this story then stuck around and it spread throughout the region. And, and they also hear about the other miracles that Jesus is doing because he's met by this guy's friends, this deaf man's friends, right? And, and, and they come to him begging, right? And this man is suffering greatly because he's both deaf and he is also has a speech impediment. And, and this is important because it doesn't say that he's mute, like he's never had the ability to talk. He has a speech impediment. And what that tells us is he was not born deaf. He wasn't born deaf. It means that he at one point had the ability to speak. He at one point was hearing. Right? But either through illness or injury, he became deaf. And like most people who lose their hearing, their speech becomes very hard to understand. Without proper therapy, without proper technology, people who lose their hearing soon begin to lose the ability to communicate verbally without the proper training. And what you have to realize is they didn't have that at this time. So that, and so because of that, I want you to notice that, that he can't, it's not that he can't speak at all. He has a very difficult time speaking. And so this man, if you, if you understand it, is really a, a terrible place of suffering. Because, because this man could not hear and not speak clearly. And because there's no such thing as sign language at this time, right? The, and, the, and the odds are, because at this point in history, most people were illiterate, he couldn't read or write. That means that he was really effectively cut off. He was cut off from the rest of the world. He couldn't communicate. Can you imagine living in that world where nobody can understand you and you can't understand anyone else? How frustrating that might be. Kent Hughes notes that if, uh, if we were given the choice between blindness and deafness, some of us would have this idea that losing our hearing doesn't seem to be nearly as debilitating as losing our vision. But, but the medical authorities and, and, and the deaf community themselves will tell you otherwise. Terrible as, as blindness is, the blind do not suffer from the same social pain and the stigma experienced by the deaf. 
the gawking, the impatient stares by those who don't, who are not aware of a person's condition, the humiliation of being thought to be stupid because you're not able to speak. And more than that, for this man, being in the first century with no tools of modern medicine, no reading and writing, no sign language, and worse, he's not even able to read the scriptures and not even able to hear the gospel. This man was truly cut off and hopeless. But praise the Lord that he had friends that loved him. And they loved him so much they brought him to Christ so that he could be healed. And believe me, there's a whole sermon just in that one thought itself. In fact, we talked about that, that very thing in, in, uh, in part seven of this series. That, that true love and true faith brings others to Christ. But the fact is, he had a friend who loved he had friends that loved him and they brought him to Christ and they begged him to help. They had heard the stories about Jesus and they believed them. And so just like the woman we talked about last week, they begged for Christ to do something and to help, and he does. But I want you to realize he does so in a very unusual way. Okay. Really, look at the details here. He says, and says, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. What? And spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphtha, that is, be opened. Now this right here is one of those texts that if you're reading it, you can just read right over it, but you should stop and you should be asking some questions. right? Because let's just admit it. Like, when you look at those details there, that's just weird. Or is it just me? Right? That's weird. Think about it. He just stuck his fingers in this guy's ear. I mean, if I was to walk up to you and stick my finger, you'd be like, what are you doing? Right? And then he spits probably on the end of his finger and he touches this guy's tongue. Right? That's not just weird. That's gross. Isn't it? I mean, I mean, think about this. If I was to spit on my finger and walk up to you and go to touch it, you'd be like, don't you touch me. I mean, you guys might want to fight, right? Much less me touching your tongue. That's weird. Let's just admit it. Right? That, that, that's weird enough that it should cause you to go, wait a minute. I know that this is the word of God, so it's in here for a reason, but that's just weird. But that's what Jesus does. Now, some people I've heard say that, well, well, he did that because Jesus healed this man this way because he never heals anybody the same way twice. And, and, and this is an example of the variety of ways Jesus heals, right, which teaches us the idea that, that different people respond to, the Christ, to, to Christ in different ways. And that means we need to have multiple ways of reaching people. And we need to be prepared for people to have multiple kinds of responses. And as noble and as probable as that may sound, that really doesn't hold water when you're really understanding the text. That's not what's being communicated here. That's not what the text is about. Because if you look at all the healings of Jesus in the Bible and the fact that Jesus... It talks about Jesus healing a multitude of people, but he doesn't even describe how he's healing people. You cannot rightly infer this from the text. This text is not a lesson in how different people respond to the gospel. This is not a lesson in how we need to tailor-make our way to share the gospel. This is something completely different. Well, if that's the case, then, then, then why do it this way? Really, why does Jesus have to do it this way? Because the truth is, as we know from previous texts, he didn't even have to touch him. Remember the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath? He'd bring him to him, or he comes up. He's standing there with this deformed hand. They're waiting to see if Jesus is going to do work. 
And Jesus didn't even lay a hand on him. He says, stretch out your hand. And he was healed. Or the guy that was lowered down to him at Peter's house. Right? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And all of a sudden, like, people are freaking out. And Jesus said, just so you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. He didn't touch him. Right? Or, or last week we talked about you know, how a mother comes to Jesus with a daughter who's demon-possessed that she left at home. And Jesus said, oh yeah, he's, she's healed. He, he healed her at a distance. The reality is, Jesus didn't need to touch this man. He didn't even need to get close to him. And he certainly didn't need to get him alone. And he didn't have to stick his fingers in his ear. Right? So why do it this way? Well, the question I think we have to come back to is, what is the point of Jesus' ministry of healing in the first place? What is the point of, of healing in the first place? And yes, right, it's about Jesus being compassionate, but that is not the main point. Jesus is not healed because he's being compassionate. Again, he is compassionate, but that's not the main point. The main point of Jesus' healing ministry is to engender faith in people and to give authority to his message of the gospel. That's why he heals. His healing points to his divinity, and it points to the fact that there is hope in him, and it points to the truth of the gospel. Now, why... Did they bring this man to Jesus because they believed they had faith. They believed that Jesus could heal him. But this man himself didn't have faith. You know why? Because he didn't even know what was going on. He couldn't know. I mean, how do you explain to a person who is completely deaf, that doesn't understand anything in writing, you can't communicate through sign language, how are you going to communicate somebody's healing ministry? How are you going to tell them about this phenomenon of Jesus Christ? You are not going to be able to communicate that. You're barely going to say, hey, you want food to eat? Like, how do you communicate that Jesus is healing people? You can't. And so these men, they have faith and they believe and that Jesus could heal. And so they bring their friend who is helpless. And this man probably didn't even have any idea what's going on. They're just, he's just trusting them. And then so Jesus then takes this man, gets him alone, takes him away from the crowd so we can get away from all the visual distractions and all the things that could disorient him and draw his attention away. He gets alone with this man, right, so he can actually get eyeball to eyeball with him so, that he, can, so he can focus. And then before he heals this man, he begins to communicate with him. That's what this is about. He puts his fingers into his ears as if to say... I understand what your problem is. I know that you can't hear. I'm aware of the fact that you're deaf. I get it. And then he touches his tongue, indicating I understand that you can't communicate very well as well. And you may say, well, what's the spit about? Well, the spit about it, what you have to realize is in that culture, right, for people in that culture, they believe that the spit of a righteous man or a popular man could bring healing. And so Jesus leveraging that understanding spits for him to understand, I'm about to heal you. You understand that Jesus is trying to communicate to this man before he heals him what's happening. And then it says, looking up to heaven, he sighed. Now why does he look to heaven? Did he need to do that? Absolutely not. He doesn't have to before. He did this because he wanted for this man to see him do it. Right? Because he wanted this man to understand what was going to happen to him. He's, he's, he's saying, I'm going to heal your ears and I'm going to heal your tongue by the power 
from God in heaven. I'm going to heal you from the power above. He was compassionately and patiently communicating with this man about what he's doing so he could build this man's faith. The expositor's Bible commentary notes that this was a clear, this was clear that, that what Jesus' actions were intended to provoke faith in a tangible and a meaningful way. In his own way, Jesus was telling this man, have hope. By the power of God, I'm going to heal you of your suffering and I'm going to set you free. And then he said, Ephaphtha, be opened. And imagine this man in a world of silence and the very first word that he hears is Jesus declaring that he is now set free from his affliction. That he's been healed. The word that he said to him was, be opened. And it says that his ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. In an instant, this man was completely and totally fully healed. Jesus healed this man this way. Not because he was looking for a novel way to heal him so that it's not repetitive in the Gospels. He healed him this way for two important reasons. Number one... Jesus went through this elaborate procedure so this man could know and understand what was happening to him and what had happened to him so that he could have faith. This was about building this man's faith. And secondly, the reason why Jesus did this this way is because it was to give us an example of what is necessary to reach the lost world. Now, we don't have to go around spitting and sticking our finger in people's ears, okay? Okay. That's not the point. This is a beautiful picture of the love of Christ in action. And it details for us what we need to do in order to minister to the hurting and the suffering world around us. Again, we don't have to stick our finger in people's ears. But it does begin with a look toward heaven. Jesus, in this instance, looking to heaven, was a visual demonstration of where the healing comes from. But it's also a demonstration of Christ's life of prayerful communion and dependence upon the Father. Jesus' look to heaven reminds us that ministry begins with prayer. Let me say that again. Jesus, his look towards heaven reminds us that ministry begins with prayer. If we're going to do our parts for the mission of Christ, if we're going to follow where Jesus leads then we must be in prayer because ultimately the success of everything that we do depends upon God, not you. If we're to to do what God calls us to do, we need to be in prayer because it is He who makes the seed grow. We just scatter the seed. It is He who gives the increase. It's He who's the one who changes hearts. You can't change hearts. It's He who brings healing. It's not us. All we can do is sow the seed, love the people, and not give up on them, and pray that God would do His parts. We are not the mechanism of change in the world. Please understand that. We are not the mechanism of change in the world. God is. We are but merely the instruments in His hand. We're the tools that He wields. But understand, on our own, we are just sitting on the shelf. He must wield us. 
And we are utterly dependent upon Him. And so if we're going to discern His will, if we're going to be empowered to work and do the things He's called us to do, then we need to be continually connected to God in prayer. We need to live a life of prayer just as Jesus did. And one of the things that we notice is throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see over and over again Christ making a point to get alone with God the Father to pray. And this is super important for us because we in our modern world can feel like we're just too stinking busy to pray. How many of you ever felt like that? I'm just too busy. You wake up in the morning after hitting that snooze button 19 times, right? You, you, you frantically get out of bed, you eat breakfast, you, or you choke something down, and, and then you have to get to it. You know, you're off you go, whether it's work, whether it's about getting the kids somewhere, or running all the errands, right? or doing some kind of projects. And then, in addition to that, you're inundated, right? You're inundated with all the technology, the phone calls, the text messages, the tweets, the emails, the, the instant messages, the... right. Probably even things that I, I can't even, I'm probably even too old to know about. And before you know it, at the end of the day, you're sitting in, in front of the television and whining for a few minutes just before you can go to bed because you're just wore out and you realize you didn't even take any time at all to pray. You feel like you just don't have time. Brothers and sisters, if there is anything in the world, if there's anything from this message that you need to write down to remember, if there is anything that you need to like put on your bathroom mirror so you can see it first thing in the morning that you need to be reminded of, it is this statement. The statement is this. You do not have time not to pray. You do not have time not to pray. You need the strength of God. You need the wisdom of God. You need the power of God in your life. You are dependent upon Him for everything. The next breath that you're going to take is a gift from Him. You're dependent on Him for everything. Your heart is beating because He wills for it to be so. You are completely dependent upon Him. You need Him for everything, but especially when it comes to ministry. You need God's power in your life. You need His comfort. You need His strength just like Jesus did. And understand, no one in the whole world has ever been any busier than Jesus was. Think about it. His family came to him to drag him home and take him and put him in the loony bin. Why? Because he was so busy, he wasn't even taking time to eat. They thought he was crazy. Everywhere he went, hundreds of people flocked to him, looking to be healed, wanting to have demons cast out of him. And, and we, we see in the text that oftentimes Jesus is working way up late at night, all day, all night. Everywhere he goes, people want to hear the word, want to get healed. No one, even the busiest among you, no one was as busy as Jesus was. Yet Jesus made time to make prayer a priority in his life. He made time to get alone with God the Father and pray. It's not a matter of what you have to do. It's a matter of priorities. If you're going to minister to the world around us, if we're going to share the hope of Christ the way that we're called to, we have to, we have to, we have to begin with prayer. As Kent Hughes says, prayerlessness is the fundamental sin of the, of the busy Christian. Whew. If there's something that, that ought to like kind of bring conviction to our hearts. I'm going to read that again. Prayerlessness is the fundamental sin of the busy Christian. And he says, because of it, today's Christian work accomplishes little for the kingdom. It's very bad that I'm busy. 
right? The last thing I need is to be so stinking busy that the work I'm doing doesn't even amount to anything. Can you imagine that, right? It's, the work that you're doing doesn't even like count. It doesn't even matter, right? It's like, like working on a garden your whole life and never growing anything. But man, you're working hard. Say that again. He says, because of it, much of today's Christian work accomplishes little for the kingdom. If we should give sight to the blind, we must ourselves be gazing into heaven. If we're to do the good works that we were saved to do, the works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do, we must begin and remain in prayer. Ministry begins with prayer. Have I beaten that horse long enough? Okay. So the next detail I want to draw your attention to is, is Jesus' sigh. Because notice, right? he touches this man, looks to heaven, and then he sighs. And the Greek word here that gets translated into the ESV version um, as sigh could be better translated as deeply sighs or even groans. That's really kind of like the, the, the emphasis of the word. Because the root of this word is grief. Right? It's a deep, strong, wordless emotion. It could have been said, and Jesus moaned. Right? This is a physical, visible, and audible emotional expression. And the idea that's being pictured here is that Jesus has an emotional reaction to this man's condition. Jesus was moved emotionally. And I say, praise the Lord that Jesus is moved emotionally. Praise the Lord that he empathizes with us. But he was moved emotionally. And the reason for that is Jesus had compassion on him. Jesus had compassion on this man. Jesus' sigh for this man was a deep feeling for this man. You see, Jesus' sigh reminds us that ministry requires compassion. It requires compassion. If we're going to be effective ministers to the world around us, then we must grow compassionate as Christ is compassionate. We need to be moved by the brokenness and the hurt of those around us like Christ was. Which means we need to look around at the world the way that Jesus does. Because let's just be honest. Let's be really frank. Nobody's frank in here, right? Being honest, it's hard to minister to people that you look down on. Right? It's hard to minister to people that you despise. It's hard to minister to people that you feel that are unworthy of your time and your attention and your love. It is hard to minister to people that you just do not feel compassion for. But we are called to be compassionate the way Christ is compassionate. The Bible says we are to be forgiving the way Christ is forgiving. You're not to be forgiving like everybody else. You're to be forgiving like Christ is forgiving. You need to be merciful the way God himself is merciful. And in light of that, the truth is we have no right to withhold compassion from anyone. Whew. Right? We have no right to withhold compassion from anyone because all of us are unworthy. None of us deserves the love of God. None of us deserves His grace. None of us deserves the mercy and the good gifts that He gives us. None of us deserves the kindness that He's extended to us. None of us deserves the compassion that God feels toward us. So what would give us the right to deny anyone compassion? Nothing. We have no right to withhold compassion at all. Which means if we're going to follow Christ, we need to become more like Him and grow in our ability to be compassionate. 
Which means we need to get outside of ourselves and stop looking at the world with human eyes. And we need to begin looking at those around us with the eyes of Christ. We need to see those around us who are addicted as captives enslaved to a cruel and violent and terrible master. We need to see the children around us that are rebellious and mean and vulgar as the scared, lost children that they are. We need to see people who are, who are caught up in sexual sin as unaware, witless prayer, uh, prey animals that are being stalked by a menacing and terrible predator that's about to strike and take their life. We need to see everyone around us as people who are all made in the image of God because we all are, but that image is broken and distorted. We need to see people as blind beggars, starving to death, groping around in the darkness, hoping for the slightest bit of hope that they can grab a hold of. Because that's what they are. And that's what you were. Except Christ had compassion on you. Again, to quote Kent Hughes, what our text is teaching is that, that Christ's compassion was part of his healing process for the world. Those of us who desire to, to minister Christ's healing must share his compassion for the hurting humanity. There is a hurting world out there with thousands who are hurting every bit as much or more than this deaf man. We need to come to them with a deep sigh. We need to come to them with, with, with real compassion. The third thing I want you to notice is that Jesus touched this man. You might think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, what you have to remember is Jesus was in what was considered an unclean land full of unclean people. And Jesus now is purposely touching a person that most Jews would consider to be unclean. Most Jews would have avoided all physical contact with Gentile people because they believed that touching a Gentile would make them temporarily defiled or unclean. That's why it says in the text before that they would wash their hands after going to the marketplace. But here Jesus, he doesn't even hesitate. He takes a hold of this man and touches his ears and his tongue. He's not afraid to touch this man. And this is important, right? Because, because what this is saying to this man, he's saying is, I don't just feel compassion for you. I really actually care about you. I'm with you. I understand you. Jesus' touch brings comfort to this man through his touch. Jesus' touch reminds us that ministry requires bringing comfort to other people. Because it's not enough to feel compassion for those who are hurting. It's not. It's not enough to feel sympathy and compassion for the lost. Yes, ministry does require compassion, but it cannot stop there. It can't stop with your feelings. We must take action to bring comfort to those who need it. Which means, there's going to be those times you're going to get your hands dirty. There are going to be those times when you're going to need to do something for someone that's just not convenient for you to do at the time to do it. There's going to be times when you're going to have to touch physically people or emotionally someone that might be, like according to the rest of the world, someone that, that is untouchable. Someone who's unworthy of your affection and your touch. Mark chapter 1, we read about a story that fully demonstrates this idea. Beginning in verse 40, it says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. 
And what you have to understand is this man was somebody had a horrible, incurable, but very contagious skin disease. And he was the very epitome, the very definition of what it meant to be untouchable. In fact, Jewish law demanded this man live a life of solitude, away from human contact. He was not to be touched at all. And if he was to encounter someone in his near proximity who was not affected by this disease, he was required by law to shout, unclean, unclean, so people would have a, a, a warning to not get close to that guy. People would, would know that he was infected and they would know to keep their distance and stay away from him. And people avoided lepers because it was a horrible disease. Your body would just literally rot off. People's limbs would fall off. And the stench was horrible. It's probably one of the worst existences possible. Right? This man has this disease and lives a complete life of solitude. Right? And he comes to Christ and he hears about his ability to, to heal. And he says, you can heal me, but I want you to see Jesus' response. Moved with pity. It almost brings me to tears. Moved with pity pity or compassion he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him I will be clean and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean now we already understand we know right that Jesus didn't have to touch him he could have just said the word hey you stay right there don't get any closer that's cool hey be clean and he would have been right he didn't have to touch him but he makes a point to touch him. Why? For the same reason he touches this deaf man. He wanted to connect with him and comfort him. And he says, right, with his actions, I care about you. You are important to me. You're not a castaway. You are worthwhile. I'm with you. I love you. You see, actions speak louder than words. It's one thing to feel compassion for someone. It's a whole other thing to demonstrate that compassion with your actions. Especially when bringing comfort to other people when it makes us uncomfortable to do so. Which is kind of like the story of my life, by the way. Because if you've known me for any length of time, you will know that I have been in my life the classic touch-me-not. Right? I'm like really cool with nobody touching me. Seriously. Like, I, I mean, believe me, I, no, I could hug my, and my mom and my dad, and I love kissing my, you know, and my wife and my kids, but for everyone else, I was cool with just, just don't touch me. Right? I mean, I could shake hands, right? but I was not a hugger. And I was never, I mean, I, I really struggle with people putting their hand on my shoulder or putting their arm around me like that to comfort me or to touch my arm, right? And I, cause I, and I wouldn't do that for anyone else. That's just who I was, right? But then God began to work on my heart. And he brought people in my life who were a lot more affectionate than I was, like most of Kim's family. I mean, whew. I mean, I go to Kim's family and everybody's like all hugging on me and kissing my cheek. And some people are like getting like right there. I'm like, come on now. But I realized that touch, it was something that brings a lot of people great comfort. And I've learned to hug and I've learned to put my arm around someone and put my hands on them and pray for them. Physical touch for those who are hurting oftentimes brings comfort and it communicates a great depth of compassion. 
Now, bringing comfort to people and demonstrating your love for them you know, isn't just limited to bringing you know, physical touch to them. It could also be your willingness to help them. Like helping them move. Right? Or making repairs on their house or helping them in and out of their car. Or up and down the stairs. It might even be still willing to just visit them when nobody else will visit them. Just going to them and hanging out with them when nobody else will hang out with them. Or being willing to sit there and let them cry and grieve. Right? You talk about something that makes people uncomfortable really fast is someone crying and grieving. Right? Because the reaction is, is either, I'm going to cry and grieve with you, or I just really want to get out of the room because I can't take this. Sometimes you just need to sit there and be there. It can be taking people to town for a doctor's appointment, or it can be you know, bringing over meals so they don't have to cook during a very difficult time in their life. There are lots of ways to touch the lives of those around us and demonstrate your love and your compassion and your comfort for them. You see, it's our ability to comfort those in need that becomes the living image of the love of Christ in their life. Your Love, when you actively love and bring comfort, it's not you that they're seeing. It's Christ. And so then when you do tell them about the love of Christ, it's not some abstract idea. They understand it's a real thing. They can see it. They can see that this love is real. That is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. Right? A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people... Light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand so it gives light to all the house so everybody can see. And in the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ministry requires bringing comfort because it shines the light of Christ in their lives so they can see his love, making their hearts ready to hear the message of hope. Now, the reality is, is these first three are the easy ones for most people. I'm not saying they're easy themselves, but they're the easiest ones for people to do. In fact, when most people in America, when they think about going into ministry or doing ministry type things, they think about living out their faith for the rest of the world, for the rest of the world to see by doing these three things. By being compassionate, by serving and bringing comfort, and by praying for people. And when a person's ready to step out of their comfort zone and and get busy serving, they don't have a problem praying for someone or or being compassionate to someone. And most of the time, they don't even have a problem bringing comfort to someone. But for some reason, the vast majority of Christians struggle with this last thought that Jesus has for us. What I need you to understand and come to terms with is the truth. If we do not live out this last detail... If we do not live out this last detail I'm about to share with you, we are wasting our time in ministry. We're wasting our time. Because notice Jesus has compassion on this man, he touches this man, and he looks to heaven in prayer. But those are not the things that bring healing to this man. What is it that brings healing to this man? It is the word of Christ. It is his declaration See, Jesus' declaration here reminds us that ministry absolutely requires the Word of God. Let me say that again. Ministry requires the Word of God. 
In fact, let's all say that together. Ministry requires the Word of God. And I don't want to be harsh here, right? But if we're sharing with people, if we're not sharing the Word of God, if we're not sharing with them the Gospel, if we're not telling them about Christ, we are wasting our time. Look me in the eyes here. If we're not sharing the Gospel, we're wasting our time. You see, there's this popular phrase that's circling around the Christian church today. It goes like this. Preach the Gospel and use words if necessary. And people are like, that's so cool. I've got to put that on a t-shirt. Right? I've got to put that on a bumper sticker. It's this idea that your lifestyle is what proclaims the gospel instead of your words. It's the idea that if you'll just pray for people, and if you're just compassionate to people, and, and you will bring comfort to them, then, then somehow, someway, that magically they'll see the love of Christ in your life. And by osmosis, then, they will have a desire to turn to Christ and be saved. That is not how it works. It is always necessary to use words when it comes to preaching the gospel. Because faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The word of God. The Bible makes it really clear. The gospel must be spoken. The gospel must be heard. The gospel must be believed. Now if someone's deaf, they can hear it through sign language. But it's the same point. You see, the other way is just an excuse for us to elevate social action above the uncomfortable nature of us proclaiming the gospel and taking a risk of being rejected by those that we encounter. And please don't misunderstand me. There are people who are willing to share the gospel who have no interest at all in being compassionate and bringing comfort to people. And there are people who have no interest in the loving side of ministry. And they are brash, and they are forceful, and they are jerks, and they are wrong. Clearly we must be compassionate. Clearly we must be willing to meet needs. Clearly we must be willing to pray for people. But we absolutely must proclaim with our mouths the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must tell people about their sin. We must tell them about Christ and His finished work on the cross. We need to tell people about the resurrection. We need to tell people that they need to repent and believe the gospel. Because remember... It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation for all who believes. That's what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, not your good deeds. The gospel, not your loving attitude, not your willingness to help, not your compassion. Now understand, these things are good and they're important and they shine the light on the gospel and they point towards the gospel, but they're not the gospel. Which means they have no power on their own to save. The gospel is the power to save. And it must be proclaimed out loud. It must be heard. It must be believed. Otherwise there is no real healing. Now understand, it is absolutely compassionate to feed people. But understand, they will be hungry again and still be in their sin. It is compassionate to put clothes on people. But understand, those clothes are going to wear out at some point, and they will still be in their sin. It's, it's compassionate to grieve with someone and bring comfort to them and help them get through a difficult time. But guess what? One day, they will grieve again, and they'll go through another difficult time because the sun shines, and then it doesn't. Right? And they're still going to be in their sin. 
whatever comfort, whatever, whatever we have to offer someone through loving and compassionate service to them is still temporary. Right? Even Jesus' miracles were temporary. Even the ones he raised back to life, like Lazarus, guess what? He died again. There's only one thing that we can offer that has a permanence in the world, and that's the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that will bring permanent healing to a person's soul. The only, and the only way for us to communicate the gospel is through the Word of God. Remember, we're on a mission. And we need to remember what that mission is. What was the reason for, for Christ to come in the first place? What was the reason for for God to lay aside his glory and take on a human nature so he could identify with us? Why did Jesus have to come and live a perfect life that you couldn't live? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross bearing your sins? Why did Jesus have to endure the awful and terrible wrath of God that you deserve? Why does he have to give you his righteousness? Why was it necessary he was raised again? Well, Paul tells us and summarizes Christ's mission very clearly when he wrote to Timothy. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the mission that we're called to. That's the good work that we were created for. That's why God made you a masterpiece. That's why he saved you, is to be a part of that mission. The mission of Christ is not to make everybody in the world comfortable, though that might be nice. The mission of Christ is not to make everyone better people, though that would probably be nice too. The mission of Christ is not to end homelessness this side of eternity. The mission of Christ is not world peace in this lifetime. The mission of Christ is not ending world hunger, and it's not equality for everyone in this lifetime. The mission of Christ is much bigger than that. It's more important than that. The mission of Christ is to save sinners. And that's the mission that you were called to. And the way that you're to do that mission, the way that you're to live on mission, is to pray your heart out to Him. And to be compassionate to everyone that's hurting. And to bring comfort to everyone that you can. And proclaim the gospel to everyone you encounter. That's how you fulfill the mission. That's how you follow Christ. As Kent Hughes says, as we said in the beginning. This is what we need if we were to reach our pagan, secular world for Christ. An upward look of prayer, a heartfelt sigh of compassion, a loving touch upon the hurting, and a bold pronouncement of the good news. Then, and only then, will will healing come to our homes, our neighborhoods, our churches, and our world. That is our mission. That is what you're called to. And that's how we accomplish it. Through prayer, compassion, comfort, and the Word of God. If you call yourself by the name of Christ, that's what you were called to. That's what you were saved for. Church, rise up and let's get to it. Let us not be the tool that gets left in the closet when there's so much around us to be done. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.